we're going to launch into a book of the Bible. All right, so I want you to get your Bible out, and I want you to get a, a journal or something to write on, something to write with. If you're following along, you have a smartphone, you can, you can download the notes from our app, and so that's an awesome thing to do. We're going to go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. This is the second letter to Timothy from the Apostle Paul, and this letter is... Uh, one that when we see the Apostle Paul writing it, in contrast to his first letter, we see that this letter is much more reflective. The first letter was very direct and very commanding and very challenging. Timothy was a young man, a young pastor, and he was wrestling with whether or not people would listen to him, and he was having to face false teachers, and First Timothy was a real direct letter. Well, Second Timothy is a whole different ballgame for a couple of reasons. Number one, Timothy's a little bit older now, and, and, and he's getting his footing. But Paul has also come to a moment in his journey where he's, he's thinking about all that has transpired. He's, he's really, it's really an emotional letter. Paul writes it from uh, a jail cell. He writes it from a prison. And they're not sure exactly which it was. It was most likely a Roman prison in Rome. But they, they, uh, they're not sure exactly where he was, but he's writing, and he, he takes on this remembering of what the experiences were that they had together. He takes on a, a sense of real sentimentalism, where he's really looking back and he's reviewing his life with Timothy, reviewing both the, the friendships and the failures and the difficulty and the wrestling that's gone on. But the reason I wanted to look at this book of the Bible and uh, read through it and just kind of provide an overview is we come to the end of the, of the book and we really realize why this is a significant book is because it's probably, most likely, Paul's last writings before he dies. In fact, if you turn over to uh, the fourth chapter, just... Just turn over there and we'll read verse 6 through 8. Here's what it says. It says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I'm going to call this series on 2 Timothy, Fight to the Finish. Fight to the finish. If you imagine it, it would be like your grandfather or your father writing a letter to you. And he knows he's going to go away soon. He knows that uh, his time is short and he wants to tell you the things that are most important, that are most pivotal to your life, to your ministry. Timothy is a, is a pastor still. And he's trying to coach him and encourage him both personally and in his role, in his gift as a teacher and a pastor. So you can imagine Paul writing to us as a church. And I think there are some parallels to Timothy's situation, his experience, his culture, the culture of the city he was in, most likely Ephesus. And he was 
experiencing society and false teaching and different things that were testing and challenging the, the movement of Christianity, the following of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul wants to tell him some things before he dies, and he's going to tell him the most important things that he can think of. It's really a significant, a significant book from the Apostle Paul. And it reminds me of this idea, that it is not how you start that really makes a difference. It's how you finish. How you start, I mean, it can, you can start anywhere, anytime. It reminds me of one of my favorite sayings, that position is nothing. Direction is everything. Right? It doesn't matter where you started from. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter even necessarily where you are on the journey. What matters is how do you finish? Are you committed to finishing? Are you committed to finishing what God gave you to do? I think about our church, one chapel. I remember it was just about two years ago that we met really for the first time every week. It was the week after Easter and we met in the Marriott Hotel over there on 35, just south of 290. And uh, we gathered with about 35 or 40 people and some kids in another room and, and uh, probably about 50 all together. And we, we worshiped and we talked and we prayed and uh, did a lot of the same stuff we're doing today um, and began to prepare a launch team. And, and over the summer, people kept connecting with us and we kept finding people who believed in the idea of a church that was based on God's presence, committed to relationships as a fundamental idea, the method for any mission that God gives us, relating to one another in honesty and speaking the truth in love, and then really believing that we have a mission, that God wanted us to accomplish something in this city. And I'll tell you, we're not the only ones over the last two years who've planted and seen incredible results. On our first launch day, there was about 400 people. It's so funny because a bunch of my friends from Colorado came and they enjoyed the celebration together, but we started on a journey and the church started growing like crazy. And it, it is a, an amazing gift of grace that God has given our church and others on the south side of Austin that they called a church planter's graveyard as little as three years ago. It's not true. There's a bunch of churches now where people are coming to Christ. People are coming to church because they're curious. People are showing up in a crazy way. Do you know that on Easter we had 1,200 people at one chapel? That is, the, that is, that is, that is nuts. This is just a little church in the commercial office building on the south side of Austin. Here's, here's what I'm saying to you. We've started pretty good. You could kind of sit back, kind of say, yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty awesome. That's a lot of people coming to. Listen, it's not about how we start. It's not about how well we're doing a year and a half in. The question is, how will we be committed to finishing? What are we going to do to finish? Are we going to take the Apostle Paul's advice in a book like this, and we're going to press, and we're going to push, and we're going to visit both the peaks and the valleys of our journey and be willing to finish together? So I want to, I want to highlight some ideas 
from the first chapter today, and we're just going to take the next few weeks, and we're going to dig in and kind of give an overview of the book, all right? So look at, look at chapter one, and we're going to read it, and just kind of, I'll, I'll make some comments here, and then I want to draw your attention to something that I think is the theme of chapter one, the theme of chapter one, all right? Here we go. Uh, let's start in verse 3. Pa Paul, of course, gives his first greeting. And then chapter 3, he begins to say, I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, and a, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. Now, what he's saying here is recalling his tears when he left. It's a recollection of the moment he left and how Timothy cried and how it was an emotional departure. You can see here all the sentiment, all the love. He says, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of, you, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives in you also. He had a, a mother and a grandmother that really was the heritage of his faith. Now, Timothy's dad was a Greek who was not a believer. And so it makes sense that Paul would become really this father in the faith. That's the kind of relationship that Timothy and Paul have. And so he, he's, he's highlighting the heritage that he came from. Listen, I, I'm so grateful for my heritage. Some of you are building your family heritage right now. You're the first ones. Listen, I want to say, go, finish. Fight to the finish. Don't give up. When it looks like it's not going to happen, don't give up. Keep going. Keep wrestling. Keep believing. Keep having faith. Keep putting the foundations in place. That's what, that's what, that's what Lois and Eunice did for Timothy. Verse 6 says, For this reason I, rem I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Do you know what laying on of hands is a biblical idea where you, people in authority or people around you in your community will lay their hands on you and pray for you? That's what he's talking about. He says, fan into flame the gift. Most Bible scholars think it's about teaching, about being the pastor, about the gift of the authority that, he's, that you've been given to lead these people. He says, fan into flame that gift that is in you when we laid hands on you. So it's not just anointing. It's not, some people wonder if, which, which one it is. How does this work? Is it the anointing that comes into you and gives you the gift, or is it the fanning of the flame? And the answer is yes. It's both. You receive an anointing, you receive God, gives you a, a certain opportunity, and then you also have to take care of it. You have to be a good steward of it. You have to fan it into flame. That's what he's talking about right here. All right, so here it is, verse 7. Of course, this is the famous verse. Verse 7 says, For God did not give you, us, a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. What he's saying here is the Holy Spirit that is in you is not a spirit that encourages apprehension, timidity, fear. The Holy Spirit, if you're, if you're wondering if the feelings you're having are from the Holy Spirit and they are timid, apprehensive, hesitant, unsure, that's not from the Holy Spirit. It's the, the Spirit of God that lives in you. Actually, he, what He has to give you is power, His power, God's power in you, love, love from God and love from this community, and self-discipline, everybody's favorite. 
See, self-discipline is really an amazing thing. I just want to make the, the, one of the translations says a sound mind. There's something about understanding what God has for you that gives you courage. Courage in the face of difficulty, trial. Notice what he says here in verse 8. So do not be ashamed. Everybody say ashamed. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me. Join with me in, oh, I wish he wouldn't have said that. Join with me in suffering? What is the Apostle Paul saying? Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He's, it's a little clue. He's saying, I want you to join with me in what I'm going through by the power of God. The suffering that I'm going through, the suffering that you may go through, you can do it by the power of God that lives in you. I want you not to be afraid of it. I don't want you to be timid about it. I want you to embrace it because there's something that God is doing in me and in you. Look what he says. He says, um, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. If you have a pen and you're underlining, underline purpose and grace, God's purpose and grace to be accomplished in our lives. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. If your Bible is too good to mark in, enshrine it in glass and get a new one. <laughs> this is an important little idea here. God's purpose and God's grace, he's, he's outlining it for Timothy. He says, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, not the name herald, but a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And that is why I am suffering as I am. Paul is saying, I'm suffering because of what God called me to do. It's a truth that we all need to understand. God calls us to the purpose of his grace, to live a life, a holy life, the scripture says here. And when we commit to that, when we say yes to that, it probably means that along the way, there's going to be suffering. I know you may have believed a gospel that said, if you come to God, all your problems will be solved. Everything's fine. You will never have another problem. And all you have to do is live in the blessing of the Lord until you go to heaven. It's a misrepresentation of what the gospel is really about. Because while it is true, that you have power, love, and a sound mind that the Spirit of God begins to work in you. It is not true that you'll never have to face any difficulty, that there will never be any suffering. But I tend to believe, as I read through this passage and others in the Scriptures, that it is this very suffering sometimes that reveals the power and the love and the self-discipline that God's trying to work inside you. 
And that, my friends, is a blessed life. That, my friends, is where we, where we have joy even in the midst of our trial, even in the midst of our suffering. We tap into something that's not from us. We tap into the Spirit of God that lives in us. We tap into God's purpose and grace. What's His purpose? To make you, conform you into His image. To prepare you for great things that He has for you. Absolutely. But the forming and the shaping and the molding, sometimes it really hurts. And it's not just God that forms you and shapes you. Sometimes it's just the life that we're living here. Let's get into that in just a second. I want you to notice, verse 12 says, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I am not, here it is again, say ashamed. I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him to that day. Paul's saying, I'm convinced that God's going to guard me for that final day. I'm not alone. I'm not on my own. I'm convinced that God is going to protect. He is going to deliver. He is going to strengthen me. I'm convinced that when I entrust my life to him, he's going to be faithful. Verse 13, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard, everybody say guard. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now we see a little bit behind the curtain of the Apostle Paul and what he, where, where he's writing from. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Including two guys whose names I can't pronounce very well. <laughs> I, I call them Fiji and Hermi. Fijilis and Hermogenes. Verse 16 says, May the Lord show mercy to the house hold of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed. There's that word again not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many, how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Here's a question for you. Why, why is Paul so concerned about people being ashamed of his chains? If I had to look through that chapter, and we all look through it together, and we say, what, what is the theme of this chapter? What does it look like he's trying to say? Well, there's a theme that begins to weave itself through it. While there's some really good places to stop off and look, what he's trying to say is, Timothy, I don't want you to be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. Don't be ashamed of me as a prisoner, is what he says in verse 6. If you look in verse 6, if you look in verse uh, 12, he says it again. He says, for I'm not ashamed, but I'm, I'm not ashamed. He says it very clearly. I'm not ashamed of my suffering. But I know whom I've believed in, and he's able to guard me. Guard what in, he, I've entrusted to him. Verse 16, he says it again. Paul describes Onesiphorus as not being ashamed of Paul's chains. He wasn't afraid to find Paul, to look for him, and he had to be persistent as the story goes, this, this man would have had to found him, and then not only did he find him, but he refreshed him. He encouraged him. He's so grateful for him. 
Paul is talking from a, a viewpoint of having lost some friends. He's talking from a viewpoint of being deserted. He's in jail. He's in prison. And he's concerned about how people will be shamed by it. Hmm. The word that's used here, ashamed, means to experience a painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. Can I suggest to you that sometimes we act ashamed as Christians when we go through difficulty? Can I, uh, maybe, I could, maybe I could tell you that this is the reason why we don't open up to one another sometimes. We're ashamed that we're going through difficulty. We're ashamed that we're going through hard times. It's also true that our culture and our society looks at us as Christians and asks questions about how this whole God thing works. One of, the, one of their first questions is, I don't, know that, I don't know that I believe in a God that would let such bad things happen all over the earth. It doesn't make sense to me. And we cower, ashamed, to engage them in conversation to help them see the story. Because we can't explain it. I think the Apostle Paul is trying to tell Timothy... And the people who will read this letter, hey, you don't need to be ashamed of what I'm going through or what you're going through. And I think he gives us a secret in verse 7 about how we should deal with our suffering. But before we get to that, let me say this. Could it be that Paul was saying this because... He thinks that people might think that he's not living the right kind of life. Could it be that, he's, that some people have bought into the idea that Christianity is all about everything good happening to you and nothing bad happening to you? Could he be saying this because he thinks this is what Timothy has to deal with? I think maybe that's where this is coming from. I want you to see Romans 5, verse 3 through 5. Look what it says. It's, I'll just put it up here on the screen. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Ah, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into, the hearts through the Holy, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen, I'm, I don't think all suffering comes from God. Right? I'm, I, don't, I, I don't think that's how it works. I will tell you that I believe sometimes he'll let you feel the suffering. It's like, my, it's like taking my kids to the doctor and the doctor giving them a shot. And I'll never forget the first time it happened when Zach, we took Zachary to the doctor and he looked at me with those eyes. You're going to let him do this to me? What is wrong with you? Something is really wrong here. This isn't right. He saw it as suffering. I saw it as helping him get better. I saw him as being able to fend off 
more suffering. Christians aren't immune from suffering in this world. Instead, Jesus joins us in our suffering and reveals his resurrection power. That's what happens. In the midst of suffering, God meets us there. I think the Apostle Paul is trying to help Timothy see that in this passage. But I think there's some things we have to understand first, all right? Because I, I, I think you can suffer for the wrong reasons. Turn over to 1 Peter, just, just a few pages over. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, and I want to read this passage with you. Just a few pages to the right, past Hebrews, 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what it says, verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? <laughs> but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is this is commendable before God. And then the verse I hate, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted, does this sound familiar to anybody? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the same thing that Paul said to Timothy. I'm convinced that God is able to keep what I've entrusted to him. I'm not going to be ashamed of what I'm going through in front of others because I believe that God is able to keep what I've entrusted to him. He's the one who judges best. Not other people, not what they think, not even what I think in some of my warped theology that I grew up in. I didn't mean my warped theology. I meant your warped theology. I have a little warped theology. I tend to buy into this thing that if, if I feel good, then God's in it. If I don't feel good, God's not in it. Listen, that, that, conf that confuses everything. Because Jesus is the one who said, I want you, to, if you want to follow me, I want you to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily <laughs> and follow me. How many of you know that that's painful? It can be, but it's the thing that triggers the life and the grace of God. The purpose and grace of God is triggered by the willingness to surrender to that kind of process. Now, to understand this, we need to zoom out. All right, can you zoom out with me? Because here's what I want to do. I want to unpack a little bit. Okay, creation, perfect in every way. God, God creates the heavens and the earth, puts man in the middle of it to take care of it and to rule over it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He wants to have fellowship with them, and they do that in the cool of the day, and suddenly something happens. What is it? The apple, the tree, Eve, the serpent. The serpent says, if you want to be like God, he knows. Once you, once you do this, God told them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. They do it, and it ushers in corruption Failure, disobedience, sin. It gets so bad. It, it gets so bad that just a few chapters later, just a f one or two, three generations later, because they were living a long time in those days. Really, they were. The Bible says every thought of every person was wickedness. 
It was the flood. God chose Noah and put, put, him, put him in a boat and kind of started over. <laughs> Restart, reset. <laughs> Humans 2.0, here we go. Why did that happen? Why, why did that happen to God? Hold that thought in a second. So sin continues. We come, we come many centuries later. Suddenly Christ appears on the scene and ushers in the, king, the age of the kingdom of God. God in human flesh. And he is the one who died for sin once and for all. No more sacrificial system. Jesus ushers in the, the age of God's kingdom that will come and is coming. See, because one day, here's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth that will come upon us. And what we're doing now is practicing for that. What we're doing now is asking God to give us his kingdom in greater measure. Where does his kingdom start? Where does it start? Deep down on the inside of you and me. As we believe, as we embrace God and what he's done, as we believe in his, the, the book that he wrote and we believe in what Jesus did, then something begins to happen to us. Jesus taught us. All right, so do you see it? Perfect. Perfect at the end. Really sketchy in the middle. <laughs> Are you with me? All right. So, so here's the problem. People don't know why bad things happen to good people. They're wrestling. Well, what is this? Is it God? Did God do this to me? God's mad at me. I know. God's mad at me. That's why I'm suffering. Wait, wait, no. I'm just suffering because that person's an idiot. <laughs> More often than not, that is the second one, by the way. <laughs> there are forces at work in the earth that we all have to understand as Christians if we're going to enter into dialogue with our neighbors about this. Or we can shrink back and be ashamed because we can't really explain all the things that happen. Listen, I can't explain all the things that happen, but here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. There are four things at work in the earth, four ideas, four influences, and I want you to write them down. Four influences on the earth. The first influence is God's will. God's will. Don't you love God's will? We're supposed to love God's will. We're supposed to say, God, whatever you want, that's what I want. Where, where, did he teach us something about praying his will or something about it? What, where is it? Oh, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples. He said, Our, here's how you pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is where? In it where he is. Why do we need to pray God's kingdom come to earth? Because it's not. <laughs> right? right. It's, it's not being done on earth right now. It's not. I mean, all you, listen, all you got to do is look around. The injustice is staggering. The crazy stuff that's going on in our world. It's obvious there's something else besides God's will happening, right? Satan's will, fallen angel, the serpent, the one who tempts the one who tempts us with sin, the one who appeals to our own lusts, our own impurities, Satan's will is at work in the earth. I mean, I hate to tell you this, but the Bible confirms it. Ephesians 2.2, Paul calls him the ruler of the air. 
the prince of the power of the air. He's over all these things. When he, when he tempted Jesus with all the nations, if he just worship him, you know why he could give him the nations? Because they were his. Now, they're only his during this middle section where it's a little crazy. Where God's kingdom is coming into the earth, looking forward to what is to take place, a new heaven and a new earth. But in this in-between time, we are wrestling, we are fighting, and that leads us to the third influence, and that is man's will. Man's will. People get to choose. I don't think we give enough credit to God for the respect he has for people. The people that he created. He lets them choose. He lets them decide. God has incredible respect. Incredible openness. That's what he did for Adam and Eve. He let them choose. And then he came up behind. You know what the Bible actually says? It was the first sacrifice in the scripture. He provided some animal skins for them because they realized they were naked. Even in the midst of man's will or, or our own disobedience or foolishness or rejecting him, he shows up and tries to accomplish his will. That's the power of, the, of what we're talking about here. Man's will, man's will is when somebody does something to you and it was their decision. Now, a lot of times, the devil's in on it because he'll use whatever he can if he can get a drunk driver to swerve off the road and he can influence a guy to drink more and drink more until he's just wasted and he gets behind the car, the wheel of a car, and he kills somebody, that's man's will at work there. The devil might have been behind it, but he didn't, he didn't make him swerve. He just influenced his life so much so that he destroyed his own life and destroyed another person in the process. You might say to him, well, I prayed for my kids, and I prayed for God's will to happen. Listen, the reason we pray for our kids to get God's will in them is not just because we want them to have the American dream. <laughs> that's, that's not what we're praying for. We don't want them to have any pain. Come on, as parents, that's crazy. You raise kids with no pain, guess you got spoiled brats who get everything they want. No, we're praying for them to see the world as God sees it. We're praying for their eternal souls. We're praying for them to understand that there's more happening here than just what's on the surface. That's what we're praying for. But all these three things are going on. And then finally, we have one more thing. It's called natural law. Natural law would be the fact that if you don't wear your seatbelt, the chances of you getting killed in a car wreck go way, way up. Every time I read in the paper that somebody got in a wreck and it says they weren't wearing their seatbelt, I give it to my kids. I say, look, you see this? Do you see this? If you don't wear your seatbelt, the chances of you dying are 100%. It's not really, but it's really high. Put on your seatbelt. It's just natural law. Did you know there are bacteria in the, this fallen world that we have? Viruses. You can catch stuff. You can be, you can, there's any number of things. People, people ask the question, if God's so loving, why are there earthquakes? Perfect creation, corrupted by sin, creates all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the earth. Not only through people, but through the fact that God's presence changes. The garden is no longer this place for God's 
presence. And now God had a plan. He had a plan for his presence. And his presence was going to come to the earth in a greater way through Jesus. And then Jesus went to heaven and he sent back the Holy Spirit. So his presence is here now in a great way. And it lives in our hearts. But we're living in this mess called the earth. You got all these things going on. You can't always tell what happened or who, who was behind it. You really can't. You have, to, you have to learn the scriptures, and we have to read how God's will makes its way into our lives, even in spite of Satan's will, even in spite of other people saying, you'll never do it. You'll never be able to make it. You'll never be able to be who, who you want to be. In the midst of that, in the challenge of growing up in the environment that you grew up in, God's will is wanting to be produced. We pray it. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. That's why that prayer is so important. That's why we got to pray it every day. Because if you don't, if we don't understand all these forces going on in the earth at the same time, we can become ashamed. We become ashamed. I'm ashamed. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Here, now, some of you are nervous because you're Calvinists. Okay, so let me tell you how I see that, all right? Sovereignty, free will, that's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Everything happens for a you know, One of the worst things people say is, well, everything happens for a reason. And they mean, what they mean is God does everything for a reason. Well, not, yeah, he does, no doubt about that. But what they, what they don't understand is everything does happen for a reason. It's just that some of the reasons aren't good. Some of the reasons are people's stupidity. Some of the reasons are Satan trying to get in and, and, and destroy people. Some of the reasons are God's will is his mercy is coming in and it's healing a situation even though it's really bad. I think we have to understand this. We have to embrace it. We have to get it. Go back to verse 7, all right? Here's what it says. Paul said to, in, verse, in verse 7 to Timothy, he said, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't be full of timidity. Don't be timid or afraid. Don't be apprehensive. Don't let these sufferings or the difficulty that you're experiencing cause you to shrink back. You know what 1 John 4, 4 says? It says, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. It's a fight. There's no doubt it's a fight. But listen, the one who's in you is greater. That's where faith comes in. Oh, it doesn't look like God's greater. Looks like I'm a mess. Looks like I can't pay my bills. Looks like I, what in the heck is going on? I can't find a job. What, God is not even anywhere near me. See, that's what the devil's plan for you to think is. He wants to convince you of that because he wants to convince you that this season will never end. But in reality, what's happening is God is working behind the scenes. God's will is trying to be produced. When you pray it every day, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. Have you ever heard anybody say something like this? Man, that period of my life was so awful, but I wouldn't change a thing about it. You ever heard them say that? It's the craziest thing that I hear any people say. But you know why they say it? It's because something happened to them. Something shaped them, changed them, let them, and, 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 and it's true. They should have changed it, but they couldn't have. It, it, maybe it was a result of their sin. Maybe it was a result of their stupid activity. Maybe it was a result of somebody else's failure. I meet so many people, kids who've been abused by their parents. This is one of the worst things on our planet. 
physical, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, it's, the wor- it's one of the worst things because it shapes your view of God. It shapes your view of the whole world. Those kids didn't do anything to deserve that. But they live in a fallen world and they live in a place where Satan is lurking and they live in a place where people do stupid things. God's will is for them to be healed. God's will is for them to be whole. God's will is if his people will care for them, will share the message, won't be ashamed, won't be afraid to say anything, that will actually rescue our community from junk like that. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? This is why Paul says, don't be timid. Don't shrink back. Be full of power the spirit of god that lives in you he has power oh but i'm going through such a hard time i don't care well no i'm sorry that wasn't very pastoral was it (laughs) i care i care deeply i care i care deeply but what i'm saying to you is that the solution to the suffering that you're going through is to press harder into god's spirit the, the solution to what's happening around you, whether it's from the devil or from somebody else's dumb decision or maybe from your own, this is the devil's best plan. He wants to say, tell you, ah, yeah, it's all your fault. You're such an idiot. God will never, never let you recover from this. You're, you, all the stuff you've done, he's so disappointed in you. He can't, he can't even stand you. That's his best little tool. The apostle Paul is saying, don't buy it. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Be okay because you know that suffering is working something in you. You know that it's molding and shaping. It's, and even things that the devil means for evil, God's going to turn it around somehow, and he's going to shape and mold you and let you come out of it better than you were when you went in. That is the message Paul is giving us here. Power, love, self-discipline. Some of you are struggling with your self-discipline. You know what you need? More of the Holy Spirit. I know you're thinking, no, 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 I just need to get up earlier. No, you need to tap into God's purpose and grace for you. Do you remember those words here? Pur- His purpose and grace for you is that you'll be full of the Spirit and that will produce self-discipline. All over the room, I just want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. You know where you are. You know what's going on in your life. Bow your heads, close your eyes.